This is Chapter Twenty Nine of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain. Chapter Twenty Nine. Tasmania Early Days. Description of the Town of Hobart. An Englishman's Love of Home Surroundings. Neatest City on Earth. The Museum. A Parrot with an Acquired Taste. Glass Arrow Beads. Refuge for the Indigent Too Healthy. When people do not respect us, we are sharply offended. Yet deep down in his private heart, no man much respects himself. Puddenhead Wilson's New Calendar. Necessarily, the human interest is the first interest in the log-book of any country. The annals of Tasmania, in whose shadow we were sailing, are lurid with that feature. Tasmania was a convict dump in old times. This has been indicated in the account of the conciliator, where reference is made to vain attempts of desperate convicts to win to permanent freedom after escaping from Macquarie Harbor and the gates of hell. In the early days Tasmania had a great population of convicts, of both sexes and all ages, and a bitter hard life they had. In one spot there was a settlement of juvenile convicts, children, who had been sent thither from their home and their friends on the other side of the globe to expiate their crimes. In due course our ship entered the estuary called the Derwent, at whose head stands Hobart, the capital of Tasmania. The Derwent's shores furnish scenery of an interesting sort. The historian Laurie, whose book The Story of Australasia is just out, invoices its features with considerable truth and intemperance. The marvelous picturesqueness of every point of view, combined with the clear, balmy atmosphere and the transparency of the ocean depths, must have delighted and deeply impressed the early explorers. If the rock-bound coasts, sullen, defiant, and lowering, seemed uninviting, these were occasionally broken into charmingly alluring coves, floored with golden sand, clad with evergreen shrubbery, and adorned with every variety of indigenous wattle, she-oak, wildflower, and fern, from the delicately graceful maidenhair to the palm-like old man, while the majestic gum-tree, clean and smooth as the mast of some tall amaral, pierces the clear air to the height of two hundred and thirty feet or more. It looked so to me. Coasting along Tasman's peninsula, what a shock of pleasant wonder must have struck the early mariner on suddenly sighting Cape Pillar, with its cluster of black-ribbed basaltic columns rising to a height of nine hundred feet, the hydra head wreathed in a turban of fleecy cloud, the base lashed by jealous waves spouting angry fountains of foam. That is well enough, but I did not suppose those snags were nine hundred feet high. Still, they were a very fine show. They stood boldly out by themselves, and made a fascinatingly odd spectacle. But there was nothing about their appearance to suggest the heads of a hydra. They looked like a row of lofty slabs, with their upper ends tapered to the shape of a carving-knife point. In fact, the early voyager, ignorant of their great height, might have mistaken them for a rusty old rank of piles that had sagged this way and that out of the perpendicular. The peninsula is lofty, rocky, and densely clothed with scrub or brush or both. It is joined to the main by a low neck. 
At this junction was formerly a convict station called Port Arthur, a place hard to escape from. Behind it was the wilderness of scrub, in which a fugitive would soon starve. In front was the narrow neck, with a cordon of chained dogs across it, and a line of lanterns, and a fence of living guards, armed. We saw the place as we swept by, that is, we had a glimpse of what we were told was the entrance to Port Arthur. The glimpse was worth something, as a remembrancer, but that was all. The voyage thence up the Derwent Frith displays a grand succession of fairy visions, in its entire length elsewhere unequalled. In gliding over the deep blue sea studded with lovely islets, luxuriant to the water's edge, one is at a loss which scene to choose for contemplation and to admire most. When the Huon and Bruni have been passed, there seems no possible chance of a rival, but suddenly Mount Wellington, massive and noble like his brother Etna, literally heaves in sight, sternly guarded on either hand by Mounts Nelson and Rumney. Presently we arrive at Sullivan's Cove, Hobart. It is an attractive town. It sits on low hills that slope to the harbor, a harbor that looks like a river and is as smooth as one. Its still surface is pictured with dainty reflections of boats and grassy banks and luxuriant foliage. Back of the town rise highlands that are clothed in woodland loveliness, and over the way is that noble mountain, Wellington, a stately bulk, a most majestic pile. How beautiful is the whole region for form and grouping and opulence and freshness of foliage and variety of color and grace and shapeliness of the hills, the capes, the promontories, and then the splendor of the sunlight, the dim rich distances, the charm of the water-glimpses. And it was in this paradise that the yellow-liveried convicts were landed, and the corps bandits quartered and the wanton slaughter of the kangaroo-chasing black innocents consummated on that autumn day in May, in the brutish old time. It was all out of keeping with the place, a sort of bringing of heaven and hell together. The remembrance of this paradise reminds me that it was at Hobart that we struck the head of the procession of junior Englands. We were to encounter other sections of it in New Zealand presently, and others later in Natal. Wherever the exiled Englishman can find in his new home resemblances to his old one, he is touched to the marrow of his being. The love that is in his heart inspires his imagination, and these allied forces transfigure those resemblances into authentic duplicates of the revered originals. It is beautiful, the feeling which works this enchantment, and it compels one's homage, compels it, and also compels one's assent compels it always, even when, as happens sometimes, one does not see the resemblances as clearly as does the exile who is pointing them out. The resemblances do exist, it is quite true, and often they cunningly approximate the originals, but after all, in the matter of certain physical patent rights, there is only one England. Now that I have sampled the globe, I am not in doubt. There is a beauty of Switzerland, and it is repeated in the glaciers and snowy ranges of many parts of the earth. There is a beauty of the fjord, and it is repeated in New Zealand and Alaska. There is a beauty of Hawaii, and it is repeated in ten thousand islands of the southern seas. There is a beauty of the prairie and the plain, and it is repeated here and there in the earth. Each of these is worshipful, each is perfect in its way. 
yet holds no monopoly of its beauty. But that beauty which is England is alone. It has no duplicate. It is made up of very simple details, just grass and trees and shrubs and roads and hedges and gardens and houses and vines and churches and castles and here and there a ruin and over it all a mellow dream haze of history but its beauty is incomparable and all its own hobart has a peculiarity it is the neatest town that the sun shines on and i incline to believe that it is also the cleanest however that may be its supremacy in neatness is not to be questioned there cannot be another town in the world that has no shabby exteriors no rickety gates and fences no neglected houses crumbling to ruin no crazy and unsightly sheds no weed-grown front yards of the poor no backyards littered with tin cans and old boots and empty bottles no rubbish in the gutters no clutter on the sidewalks no outer borders fraying out into dirty lanes and tin-patched huts no in hobart all the aspects are tidy and all a comfort to the eye the modestest cottage looks combed and brushed and has its vines its flowers its neat fence its neat gate its comely cat asleep on the window-ledge we had a glimpse of the museum by courtesy of the american gentleman who is curator of it it has samples of half a dozen different kinds of marsupials a marsupial is a plantigrade vertebrate whose specialty is its pocket in some countries it is extinct in the others it is rare the first american marsupials were stephen gerard mr astor and the opossum the principal marsupials of the southern hemisphere are mr rhodes and the kangaroo i myself am the latest marsupial also i might boast that i have the largest pocket of them all but there is nothing in that one the tasmanian devil that is i think he was one of them and there was a fish with lungs when the water dries up it can live in the mud most curious of all was a parrot that kills sheep on one great sheep run this bird killed a thousand sheep in a whole year he doesn't want the whole sheep but only the kidney fat this restricted taste makes him an expensive bird to support to get the fat he drives his beak in and rips it out the wound is mortal this parrot furnishes a notable example of evolution brought about by changed conditions when the sheep culture was introduced it presently brought famine to the parrot by exterminating a kind of grub which had always thitherto been the parrot's diet the miseries of hunger made the bird willing to eat raw flesh since it could get no other food and it began to pick remnants of meat from sheepskins hung out on the fences to dry it soon came to prefer sheep meat to any other food and by and by it came to prefer the kidney fat to any other detail of the sheep the parrot's bill was not well shaped for digging out the fat but nature fixed that matter she altered the bill's shape and now the parrot can dig out kidney fat better than the chief justice of the supreme court or anybody else for that matter even an admiral and there was another curiosity quite a stunning one i thought arrowheads and knives just like those which primeval man made out of flint and thought he had done such a wonderful thing yes and has been humored and coddled in that superstition by this age of admiring scientists until there is 
probably no living with him in the other world by now yet here is his finest and nicest work exactly duplicated in our day and by people who have never heard of him or his works by aborigines who lived in the islands of these seas within our time and they not only duplicated those works of art but did it in the brittlest and most treacherous of substances glass made them out of old brandy bottles flung out of the british camps millions of tons of them it is time for primeval man to make a little less noise now he has had his day he is not what he used to be we had a drive through a bloomy and odorous fairyland to the refuge for the indigent a spacious and comfortable home with hospitals etc for both sexes there was a crowd there of the oldest people i have ever seen it was like being suddenly set down in a new world a weird world where youth has never been a world sacred to age and bowed forms and wrinkles out of the three hundred and fifty nine persons present two hundred and twenty three were ex-convicts and could have told stirring tales no doubt if they had been minded to talk forty-two of the three hundred and fifty nine were past eighty and several were close upon ninety the average age at death there is seventy-six years as for me i have no use for that place it is too healthy seventy is old enough after that there is too much risk youth and gaiety might vanish any day and then what is left death in life death without its privileges death without its benefits there were one hundred and eighty-five women in that refuge and eighty-one of them were ex-convicts the steamer disappointed us instead of making a long visit at hobart as usual she made a short one so we got but a glimpse of tasmania and then moved on end of chapter twenty nine